0: So we're in Romans chapter 12, and I invite you to open your Bibles there. We come to this absolutely amazing text of Scripture. And as I think about this Scripture, particularly Romans 12, 1 through 8, and we're looking at this morning, verse 2, and one phrase in verse 2, particularly the phrase, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I think about the power of this section of Scripture, I recognize the the riches of God's grace in here. What I believe that Paul does in these opening verses in one through eight is sets the tone for the final five chapters. That everything we struggle with, every challenge that we face, comes back to these verses and one area or more that we resist we struggle because we struggle to apply one of the or more of these principles that are laid out in these verses so they are immensely practical to us and if you thought well it was so I didn't know what to do to apply Israel and the church well you'll get plenty of application now as we work through this section of scripture and what stood out to me was an illustration that came in the news over the last couple of weeks maybe you've seen the article of a pastor who recently took his own life a mayor in a small town in Alabama a pastor took his own life because of his hidden life was brought to the surface a life that he had lived for many years anonymously a life that was a fantasy in his mind a life that he had imagined that no one would ever discover, and he lived in that imagination for many years. He had imagined that there was a particular businesswoman in the area, that he would go and take her life and assume her identity, that he would then live as that person and, and, and manifest himself as that person in the community Eventually, he took pictures of himself dressed as this individual, told stories about it, and all of this, again, anonymously It presented online covering his identity. He lived in this fantasy for so long, and then eventually some Internet sleuth came along and exposed his life. After a couple of days of exposure, he took his own life You'd imagine that this life was not hurting anybody, that this life was private, it was not known to anybody, but certainly we went back in time to when all of this began and we told them, if you go down this path, it's going to lead to the end of your life. You certainly wouldn't believe it. But what was demonstrated in that situation and, and even after the service here, I had a couple other individuals come up and tell me other stories, similar lines, similar events, similar tragic ends. What stands out to me is this: that if any one of these individuals had applied the principles of Romans 12, one and two, or Romans 12,1 through8 here, they would have been preserved and protected. We don't see that very often. We don't recognize how God is preserving and protecting us with his truth. How every principle, every idea brought out in the scriptures are given to us for our preservation, for our protection. They're given to us to build us up and to strengthen us and to be able to help us stand in the day of difficulty. Sky was unable to stand in the day of difficulty because In his private life, he had been given in to a life of shame, a life of difficulty. All along the way, the sin was telling him, This is no big deal. Sin was telling him, It's not really a problem. No one's going to find out. This is only your private life, your alter ego. It's not who you are. Who you are is the mayor. Who you are is the pastor. Who you are is this respected community official. You're not this individual, this private life. But that is the lie. That is the lie of sin. The lie of sin is that whatever happens in the secret places of my heart, that's private, that's off limits. Nobody knows. It's okay. Can have a difference between what's taking place in the inner heart from what's happening on the outside. We could say this if you want a healthy assessment of your present spiritual condition, look at your thought life. Look at your heart. Do you rage within your own heart, imagining how you're going to tell that person off? Do you hate in your own heart, imagining how you're going to afflict somebody with pain? Do you lust in your heart, imagining how you're going to fulfill your desires and pleasures? Do you justify yourself in your heart, imagining that you're the only person right, that your assessment is flawless, imagining that you're the only one with truth, the only one who has an accurate assessment? Are you greedy and envious in your heart, imagining more and more for yourself? Are you, in your heart, filled with hurtful speech and destructive words, just ready to come pouring out? That is the assessment of your spiritual condition. To show you this, turn over to Mark chapter 7, because Jesus draws this out and reminds us of this very principle in Mark chapter 7. Jesus tells us that the source of all contentions, all difficulties, all sins that come out, he gives us the very source. The temptation for us is to think that it's out there. That the problem is outside of us. The problem is the temptation of others brought into us. The problem isn't within. And yet Jesus says, contrary. Mark chapter 7, as Jesus is ministering to the crowds, he's speaking to the crowds in parables. And he says to the crowd, starting in verse 14, he says to the crowd, after gather, gathering them together, he says, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of man are what defile the man. He says, look, you're not defiled from those outside sources coming in. You're actually defiled from within, which comes out. He makes this statement to the crowds. The disciples are confused by it. They don't understand exactly what Jesus is intending. So privately, they take him aside and they ask him, what did you mean by this statement? To which he explains in verse 20 and following. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man." comes from the heart. It comes from within. Corrupt desires, corrupt passions that flow out. Everyone runs around and and dresses up the externals as if it's all outside. Indeed, maybe that outside thing produced a temptation within, but it started from within. Every external expression of sin, the manifest, started with an internal desire. An internal corruption. And again, let's look at all the things that Jesus listed there. Thefts, adulteries, fornications, deeds of coveting and wickedness, sensuality, pride, etc. All of it starting from within. So Jesus makes us aware of the source of all of this. Turn back to Romans chapter 12 then. From within the struggle comes. And again, what strikes me today is how little people prepare their hearts and minds against the battle of evil. How little? Supposing again, it's not a problem with what's happening in my mind. It's a problem with what's happening out there. It's a problem with others. It's a problem with the outside issues. It's not a problem within. And yet the scriptures tell us otherwise. The scriptures tell us you're guarded by guarding your heart. By being aware of what's taking place within. Paul here in Romans 12 directs our attention particularly to the emphasis of being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we see in this moment how Little people value the truth because they are not yielding themselves to be transformed in their mind. They respond in superficial responses to the trials and difficulties. They respond in externals set up, but they don't respond by taking one of those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the challenge. And what... Paul lays out here, as I've been pointing out to you, are the marks of godliness, the marks of the effects of the gospel in the lives of people. Somebody was asked, how would they know that somebody has embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have professed faith, and that is a genuine profession of faith? I would say it has these marks that are presented in this section of scripture. And the corresponding opposite are also true. If one is filled with worldliness, it's the opposite of what is presented in these verses. You see, we have the tendency, if we're living in worldliness, we have the tendency to do this. We have the tendency to view our lives as belonging to ourselves. We can do whatever we want. And if we are living in worldliness, our thoughts are exalted above God's thoughts. We become proud in our thinking. We know more than the Scriptures. And when we are filled with worldliness, whatever the world offers, we are attracted and drawn to it. And when we're filled with worldliness, we're not guarding our thought life. We're living in freedom to dwell on anything worldly. And most certainly, when we're living in worldliness... We are ashamed of godliness, ashamed of the the things of God. And then, of course, if we're living in worldliness, we do not love others. We love ourselves. That is the worldliness. But Paul presents the exact opposite here. Paul presents the marks of a Christian life that are demonstrating the riches of the glory of the gospel of God. I kept thinking in these principles before we start unmasking each of the principles. I kept thinking to myself in this, if that town pastor had meditated on the riches of the gospel here, he would have been protected from these things. But you have a town that had lost a leader and a church which lost a pastor and a wife who lost her husband. And children who lost their father and friends who lost a friend because he would not bring his heart under these principles. So they're valuable to us. As Paul walks through this, and again, there were six marks here. First of all, we noticed, and we've seen this already, here's a a life marked by total surrender. See that in the beginning of verse 1. When he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. You are the first mark of a genuine believer, is a mark, a life marked by total surrender to God. It's not my life, it's your life. I give up my life as a living sacrifice to God. He approves, He accepts, He evaluates. I do this because I'm compelled by His mercy. Because he withholds his judgment, because he withholds his wrath, because he gives us newness of life, we give ourselves freely entirely to him as a life of gratitude for what he has delivered us from through Christ. A life of total surrender. Secondly, it's marked by the end of verse 1 there, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's a life marked by humility of mind. Not exalting myself, the word there, spiritual service of worship, lagakan, is the idea of your reasonable service. This is the logical, reasonable response to the redemptive work of Christ, is to give yourself freely, entirely over to God. Thirdly, and we saw this the last time together, we see this is a life that resists the world, it resists the conforming effects of the world. Just thinking about this particular idea, the world is drawing us like a magnetic pull. It is pulling on our flesh. It is pulling on us to conform to the world. We are to be resisting it, Paul says. And this is different. Because in verse 1, again, the emphasis in verse 1 is that Paul is appealing to the Romans as a father. He says, therefore, I, I urge you. He is appealing like a father. Listen carefully to me. his wise, older apostle who has been ministering for some years, coming to Rome, and he speaks to them in a fatherly kind of appeal. I urge you. Son, pay attention to what I'm saying. It's kind of the idea. But verse 2, he switches gears, and in verse 2, he moves to the exhortation, to the command. He gives the imperatives. Do not be conformed to this world. This is the severe kind of parental warning. Do not do it. Do not give, do, be, do not be conformed. And then the corresponding positive command, but be transformed. This is now the direct apostolic command. And I want to put on your conscience this truth, this idea. If your life is given over to worldliness, you are in direct disobedience. How would you say that? Well, because the verse 2 is an imperative. Do not be conformed to this world. To be conformed to this world, then, is a direct disobedience to the Apostle Paul, influenced by and moved by the Holy Spirit, speaking God's very message to the church. It's disobedience. It's rebellion. It's hostility towards God. It is faithlessness. It is rejection of the truth and he continues on this and, and he continues to press us and warn us of the particular dangers of worldliness do not be conformed to this world do not let it force you into its mold into its identity so many reasons why i mean certainly when i look around at the world the world hides its bitterness and wrath just so it's just right there under the surface. You could see their bitterness and wrath. Just one one careless word, and all of a sudden it sets them off. One look, and all of a sudden they are responding accordingly. They hide their bitterness and wrath just under the surface. They hide their anger. The world hides its selfishness, it hides its hate, it hides its intolerance, it hides its misery. It hides its guilt and shame. All the while, they have no peace, no joy, no love, no compassion, no stability of life because they are living in opposition to God. That is the warning. And Paul is saying, do not be conformed to this world. This leads us then to our next truth here. Fourth Mark is that we are to be yielding to change. We are to yield to change. Notice, as I said, Romans 12, 2, Be, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's what we could say for certain. The mark of a Christian life is a life of change. When you embrace the gospel. When you embrace the good news of God, when you embrace the message of Jesus Christ having laid down his life on your behalf, what you have embraced is a message of transformation. You have embraced a journey that your life is not going to be the same when you get to the end of this journey. It's going to be changed. And not just kind of re you know, changed in a little bit. It is going to be entirely transformed. That's the idea of this word, but be transformed. Let me just unpack the kind of three statements here. I want to look at the word transformed, the word renewing, and the word mind, and then we'll come back and kind of show Paul's developed thought here. First of all, this idea transformed, it is used in the New Testament four times twice in reference to the transfiguration of jesus christ notice let's look at uh, matthew chapter 17 you see this in matthew 17 this word she is in matthew 17 verse 2 and in mark chapter 9 in verse 2 the same word is used and in this account what you have is jesus heading to the mount of transfiguration taking with him three of his disciples he takes peter james and john and th- the four of them gather up to the mountain, and when they get up into that mountain, Jesus pulls back his flesh and reveals his glory. It says there, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Notice the difference. It is an entire change, transformation. Again, there is radical transformation of Christ's image. Yes, you can begin to see his face, but now shining through his face is God's glory. His clothes started to shine like the sun. His garments became white. He just became this blinding light. Of course, the disciples had the very natural and normal response. They fell down in their face in fear. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. because Paul adds this same word. One more time. And the key that I wanted you to see in that verse is that there was a tire transformation. Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul uses this word again there in Second Corinthians three and verse eighteen. In Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul is describing his new covenant ministry. He's describing how he is coming and and ministering the gospel, and he is contrasting the gospel of God, which he has been given as a minister, versus the old covenant, the law. And he's demonstrating the weakness of the law, the inability of the law to save, but the glory of the new covenant ministry, which saves and transforms the old covenant, which had its glory. It says Moses came, and Moses stood before God, and Moses saw God, and the glory of God shone on Moses, and then Moses reflected God's glory. Certainly, the old covenant reflected God's glory. But we have something new here, something better, something greater. Notice, we will start in verse 15 of Second Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. He's speaking about the the Jews here who are reading the law, thinking that there's salvation there, but they're missing where the law points to Christ. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now notice verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being, notice, transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Like They used to look at Moses and had to have Moses' face covered so that they could look upon him. We now look at the glory of God. We look at the message that God has given, the message of the new covenant. And as we dwell in the message of the new covenant, we are transformed, that literal word here, transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We're being renewed. We're being changed. Being changed into his very image through the revealed word of God. Turn back to Romans chapter 12. So this idea, then, of be transformed is to be remade, renewed. A life of total transformation. Thinking like a caterpillar heading, forming a cocoon and coming out a butterfly. A total transformation, a total metamorphosis. This is the idea, a total transformation. One more emphasis to put up this word here. It is in the passive voice. Meaning, it is something done to us. It's not something we are acting on. It is something that is done to us. And it's kind of interesting when you have the passive voice, but the imperative mood, you have a command to yield yourself to transformation. It's kind of like Paul's command to, in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Same construction. You have a passive voice, an imperative mood, and the emphasis is be yielding to the Spirit. Here it is be yielding to transformation. Don't resist it. Don't resist the transforming work of God. Don't oppose that work that God is doing to transform you. That's the idea here. But be transformed. Be yielding to it. The word renewing, I love that next word that we want to emphasize before we tie this together to see how it would function. The word renewing is the idea of refreshing regenerating, making alive again, starting over. It's used in one other time in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, speaking that we are of the washing of the regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We are made afresh. We're made new. the—it's not so many in this hour, but the last hour, first hour that comes, we have a, a, a lot of young people who like to play video games. I won't ask you to raise hands if you play video games, but I will speak to you for a positive illustration. That when you hit that reset button, you refresh, you start over. This is the idea here. You are refreshed, start over, start anew. Be transformed by refreshing your mind to starting afresh, taking that corrupt thought, that corrupt desire, that corrupt line of thinking and refreshing it and thinking on the truth. It's the idea here. Be transformed by the renewing, and then one more word, renewing of your mind, the inner man. So many words used to describe the inner man is just used the heart, the inner man, the mind. Dr. Zamek points out that this term mind could have a lot of different emphasis to it could speak to our mind or disposition, kind of our attitude. It could speak to our kind of practical reasoning. That's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. We are to have the same mind and judgment with one another. We're to practically think along the same lines. It could mean understanding, that is what you know and comprehend. It could also mean your thoughts or judgments or resolution. A lot of different ways that this word mind is used here. And I think it is, again, it's our reasoning and understanding and convictions. Be transformed in the renewing of your reasoning and understanding and convictions. Be transformed. Let's tie this together. What is Paul saying? He's saying this. You take your inner man with your inner thoughts and desires and refresh them with the truth and be conformed into God's image. How do I know he's saying that? Well, let me show you Paul's expositing of his own ideas. Turn over to the book of Colossians, and we'll show you this. Because this theme comes out in Paul's writings. Well, as you're flipping, actually stop in Ephesians 4. Stop in Ephesians 4. This is all bonus. First hour didn't get this, but you're my favorite hour, so I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4. They're all going to listen to the MP3, and they're going to say, hey, wait. Okay, here we are. Ephesians 4 and verse 17. Oh, That's what Paul says. He says in 417, so I say... And affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their minds. Notice, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality and for practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Let's stop right there for a second. Notice what he contrasts. He says, here's what the former manner of life was. Our former way of practice. We were like the Gentiles who walked in the futility of their minds. They walked in a darkened understanding. They walked in a corruption of the heart. They walked in rebellion, but that's not who we are. We didn't learn Christ in that way. Notice verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And you have, notice verse 23, you that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. This is a theme of the Apostle Paul for spiritual strength. You want spiritual strength and vitality? Then stop living as you were in your former manner of life, like the Gentiles in corrupt thinking and corrupt desires. Start living in newness of life and renew your mind. Give your mind over to the things of God. Continue now over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 is quite powerful in the demonstration here. Because in Colossians 2, the whole setting of the book of Colossians is that you had a young pastor by the name of Epaphras who was ministering to this church, Epaphras, who likely could have been an early convert of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And as Epaphras came back and he ministered to those in Colossae, and as he's there, he starts to get overwhelmed by the various teachings that come up against him. And so Epaphras leaves this church. And he heads to find the Apostle Paul, and Apostle Paul writes this glorious letter back, and we can kind of trace back the, the events here in Colossi by the details that Paul lays out here. And what comes to the surface in the beginning of chapter two, is a kind of heresy that came upon the Colossian church seeking to pull the church away. It is a philosophical. Heresy mixed in with religious traditions and religious customs, all pulling people away as Paul warned them in verse 6 of chapter 2. Therefore, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed and in overflowing with gratitude. So, says, instead of giving in to these old worldly ideas and philosophies and these old things, fix yourself on Christ. Now we would ask the question, why would I fix myself on Christ? Well, in chapter 2 starting in verse 16 and following, he contrasts the emptiness of worldly religion. Notice what he says in 2:16 and through 17. First of all, he identifies a ritualism, a kind of traditionalism. Notice what he says, "Therefore, let no one or no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. No one is to stand over you to tell you how you are to operate in these religious traditions and customs. These things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. No one is to take this tradition, this custom, this Ritual and elevate it to such a level that it gains superiority. That would be ritualism. Notice the next kind of form of empty religion is asceticism or self-discipline. Notice what he says there in verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. Severe treatment of the body A limitation of your freedoms. Let no one say to you, you gain holiness and righteousness by severe treatment of the body. As if limiting yourself with water or sleep or some other necessity is going to make you more holy and draw you closer to God. That's asceticism. Church history speaks of the ascetics who would go and live on top of tall pillars expecting their devotees to come and deliver food to them, and they would keep themselves separate from the world. Funny thing is, sin still found them there, even in their rocks and caves. The third element that Paul draws out here, we can call mysticism. Notice what he says. The third form of a kind of false religion that won't transform is a mysticism He says, and again, And the worship of the angels taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his own fleshly mind. Mysticism isn't going to transform. Isn't a bunch of rules and traditions and regulations. It isn't a kind of self-disciplined sacrifice that's going to change. It isn't a mystical experience that you need. You don't need some angel coming out of heaven to give you a special message. That's not going to deliver Nor is legalism. Notice verse 20 and 21. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? All of these, verse 22 says, are in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. This is legalism, a list of rules that are going to conform you. Now, what is Paul's assessment of these four paths of religious practice? Whether you're setting up religious customs, whether you're setting up self-discipline, whether you're setting up mystical experiences, or whether you're setting up a list of rules and regulations, what is the assessment of that he gives us in verse 23? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom, notice, in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but, notice, are of no value against fleshly indulgences. They're not going to set you free. They're not going to deliver you. They're not going to change your life. They're not going to give you power to overcome Yeah, you can have the religious customs, the high religious holy days. You can have self-control and self-discipline. You can have a mystical experience. You can have a list of rules and regulations. But these things are going to have no value against fleshly indulgence. This is Paul's letter to the Colossians to warn them. To which then the question would be, Okay, then where does power come from? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's what he tells us next. In verses 1 through 4. And literally, the translation would be, since then, since you have been raised up with Christ. Paul isn't questioning the work of the gospel in the life of the Colossians. He knows what God's done in their life. Go back to chapter 1. You see it, how they've been delivered. He's saying, since you have been raised up with Christ. Notice, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, notice verse 2, set your mind on the things above. You want deliverance? Take your mind and set it on heavenly things. You want deliverance? Set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated not of the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. You want power? You want deliverance? You want rescuing? Turn your mind and set it on glorious things above, heavenly things, and yield yourself to the transforming work of God's grace that comes work that, again, religious tradition and customs can't produce, a work of a self-sacrifice and a disciplined life isn't going to produce, a work that rules and regulations aren't going to produce, a work that a mystical experience isn't going to produce, but a work of the power of the Spirit of God in the heart that directs our thoughts to heavenly things and dwells upon it, and then we are transformed. This has always been Paul's Game plan to overcoming evil. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll show you this again. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to work our way back to Romans. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And verse 5. In this passage, Paul is. Referring to spiritual warfare and the battle and he's understanding the particular battle that he's in and he says to the Corinthians starting in verse 3 for though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh meaning we're in this spiritual battle together but we're not turning to fleshly weaponry in this battle For our weapons, verse 4, of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And notice, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This has been Paul's game plan of spiritual transformation is to take every idea, every philosophy, every, every knowledge, every piece of knowledge. Any speculation raised up against the knowledge of God to take that and bring it into conformity to the knowledge of Christ. Every thought is taken captive to the obedience of Christ. This has been Paul's game plan. Now turn back to Romans, but turn to Romans thirteen, and verse fourteen. Paul continues in this track of showing our life, how we are to operate and conduct ourselves. Romans thirteen fourteen, he says this: "But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts." We live in Christ. We live in newness of life. We live by setting our mind on heavenly things. We live by walking in Christ, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We live by renewing our mind with the truth. If we had continued in Colossians 3, and I remembered, I would have pointed you to Colossians 3.16, when Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. We dwell on the riches of God's word. We meditate upon his truth that directs our thoughts heavenward. Here back in Romans 12, notice Romans 12 and verse 3, because he continues on about the thinking and drawing our minds to our thinking. Notice what he says in verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith, don't go on exalting yourself in your thoughts. All you say this all of our spiritual battles start with our mind. Starts with our inner man. Starts with our inner being, what we're thinking on and delighting in. Or meditating on. Transformation, the power for transformation, starts with taking the mind captive and taking every thought captive and directing it to the obedience of Christ. This is why Paul told the Philippians this. You can just listen. Philippians 4 and verse 8. It's what he says to the Philippians Brethren, whatever is true whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. And then this phrase, let your mind dwell on these things. This has always been Paul's spiritual battle plan. Take your thoughts and dwell on the things of God Let your mind wander in the things that bring God glory. Let your mind wander in the things that are above, the heavenly things that have been revealed to us through the riches of God's grace, the anticipation of His glory to come, the riches of His mercy and kindness, the things that are honorable and right, pure and lovely. Dwell in and the power of our Christian life comes. And back to our passage here in Romans 12 and verse 2. When our mind is dwelling on those heavenly things, it has a transforming effect. It changes us. You cannot help but be changed by it. That's why we are yielding ourselves to the transforming work of a renewed mind. A mind dwelling in the truth begins to conform us. Now, let me conclude with a couple evaluations for us. First, the negative. How would I know if I'm resisting this? What would it look like? What would it look like in my life if I'm resisting change? I'm resisting this renewing. Well, six evidences I can give you. First is this. The first evidence is, that you are resisting the transforming effect of the renewing your mind, is that there is, one, no transformation. There's no change. And now you can look at your life and say, okay, why isn't there change? If I've gone a long time and there's no change, what happened? Is it because I'm not hearing the truth? That could be the fact. You're just not sitting under a ministry where the truth is given to you. Or you're resisting that truth. You're not taking your mind captive to think according to that truth. And the first evident effect is a lack of transformation. We are being changed from glory to glory, Paul said to the Corinthians. We are being renewed daily in, the, in our mind, as Paul said to the Ephesians. There is change. There's going to be a transformation. Second evidence, say how would I know? If I'm resisting, well, it's evidenced by this: Do you have a desire for the truth? An evidence of one is not renewing their mind is they lack a desire for the truth. First Peter chapter two in verse two says, "Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word." But Peter starts by telling us all the things that we have to put off that hinder that longing. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 1, he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, these things choke out the desire for the pure milk of the Word. So one of the evidences to fail to renew our minds is that we don't have a hunger for the truth. Thirdly, It would be evident by a combative spirit. The third evidence of one who is resisting the truth is that in their mind is they have a combative spirit. They have a combative disposition or mind that is against the truth. Always arguing for why that truth was not the right interpretation. Uh, That's your idea, not mine. That is your God, not mine. There's constant debate against what is revealed. A combative spirit is one who is failing to renew their minds. Listen, I understand people make exegetical mistakes. I get it. But we can go back to the scriptures and we can find God's intended meaning because God is clear in his word. Fourthly, how would I know if I'm resisting? It's demonstrated in a lack of love and a lack of humility. No love, no humility. You lack love, you lack humility, there is a failure to renew your mind. Come proud in your own assessment, I'm proud in your own abilities, you are not being renewed by the truth. You come to the truth, and the truth humbles us, it exposes our lives. I mean, again, I work through this passage with you, and I recognize this passage is for me as it is for you. We are all under these truths, needing them. Fifthly, it's a heart marked by twisting the scriptures to move away from God's intent. A heart that constantly twists the scriptures to move to one's own intent is a heart that is resisting renewing of the mind. We come as to be shaped by the scriptures, not to shape the scriptures to us. And then lastly, one who's not renewing their mind embraces false teaching. They embrace the doctrines of demons, they embrace false teaching, and therefore they're not renewing their minds with sound teaching because they're being drawn into false teaching. Well, then what would it look like on the positive side? We won't finish on a positive note here. What is the positive side? How would I know that I have renewed my mind? What would it look like? Well, first of all, notice again verse 2, and we'll unpack this next week. But Paul tells us, so that. Here's our purpose clause. So that you may approve the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, you are going to be able to appraise godly things. First, evidence of a mind renewed with the truth that it can approve and appraise and give honor to things of God. And we will spend a whole week next week looking at that glorious truth. Secondly, What would it look like? It would look like meditating on the truth. Taking it in. Letting it dwell within you richly. Colossians 3.16 Meditating and dwelling on the truth. Hiding it in your heart that you might not sin against God. Putting it in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 119. Thirdly. Bringing our thoughts in subjection to the truth, bringing every thought under the word of God and measuring it against the truth. Is this true? Is this lovely? Is this right? Is this worthy of of honor and praise to God? If not, then I drop it. A mind that's renewed by the truth takes every thought captive. Fourthly, It's a life marked by uh, a thought life marked by holiness and righteousness, not worldliness. We're not dwelling in the corrupted thinking like the Gentiles. We're dwelling in holiness and righteousness. Fifthly, it's a life marked by divine heavenly things, not earthly things. So if I'm dwelling on the things above, I am dwelling on, again, uh, I'm having my mind renewed. And then lastly, sixthly, what does a renewing of our mind look like? It looks like filling our minds with the mind of Christ. I think like Christ thinks. Dwells on things that he dwells on. I couldn't help but think, just walking through this principle here, that pastor who took his own life, facing his private life, brought out, because He didn't follow one or more of these principles. He was vulnerable. And Satan certainly used that to cause him to take his own life. God protects us with these truths. These aren't here just simply as words on a page. These are here for our protection, to build us up and to sanctify us. And I'm reminded of the words of Solomon. And Solomon said in Proverbs Chapter 4 and verse 23, when speaking to his son, he says to his son, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. What we've been given here from Paul are those pillars that we can look to that protect our spiritual life. I ask you, church, pay close attention to these things. Let us encourage each other with these things that we may guard one another So that we can help protect one another from the evil days. The last two principles, if you were just taking notes, you're like, what are all six of them? The next is approving godliness. And the last is loving others. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths, for these principles. Indeed, these are words of truth, words of life to us, they build us up edify us and transform us. They give us spiritual stability. They sanctify us and prepare us for the days of difficulty. They make us wise and know how to minister to others in their day of distress. They calm our fears so we're not reacting, but we're trusting in your good providential directing. These words which you have given to us strengthen our faith, and they renew us and They give us hope. We see the peaceful fruit of righteousness bear out in our lives and in our relationships. We see the transforming work of grace that refreshes us each and every day so that we can see love, appreciate love, practice love, and encourage it, demonstrating the rich love towards you and the rich love towards your people so that in all things we're preserved and protected. So even if our earthly life was a life of suffering and difficulty, that we were lacking resources, if we were mistreated in any way, we know the temporary time. And we know certainly we are receiving nothing more than what our Lord has received in his earthly life. That we are cared for by you and protected by you as you move and minister among us. And so our hearts are always rejoicing, always giving you praise always appreciative and anticipating each and every day the glories to come, the magnificent mercies that you have in store for us. For we, for all of eternity, will be saying to ourselves, we do not deserve any of this. We are appreciative of your rich mercy and love. And so in the meantime, until that day comes, may The anticipation of that glory to come cause us to reach out, to care for others, to call them to repentance, to stand firm, and to represent you in all things so that you receive all glory. Thank you for this study. It's in your name we pray. Amen.